I walked into a room where a number of representatives were from Wall Street, probably about 30 people all around a big room, uh, a big table, and they were all men. And I walked up to the head of the table, and before even sitting down, I said, where are the women? And there was some stuttering. And they did acknowledge that they would try to do better the next time. I just would hope that whether you're a man or a woman and you walk into a room and everybody at the table looks the same, you call it out. If you have ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. The world is better than ever, and one of the foundational reasons for this is because of access to energy. Gas to power our cars and planes, electricity to run our appliances, natural gas and other sources to control the heat in our homes. Dubai and Las Vegas don't exist without cheap energy to power them. Our guest today is Lauren Azar. For more than two decades, she has been deeply involved in energy policy in the United States, including a role as advisor to the Department of Energy. Like every sector or industry, the energy sector is not immune to disruption. That is exactly what Lauren is going to discuss with us today. Lauren, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Hi, how are you doing? Doing great. Outstanding. Glad to, glad to be here in Madison, Wisconsin on a beautiful December afternoon. Let's start with your background. When did you decide to get involved in the energy industry? It all started actually when I was quite little because I loved to know how things work. So I would, for instance, look at the water going down the drain and wonder, where did that go? Uh, and uh, it just took one step after another from that. What are some of the qualifications that have prepared you for this industry? You know, probably number one would be my law degree uh, because a lot of this is policymaking and understanding, weighing and balancing a lot of different factors as well as understanding what's required by the law. So uh, number one would be the law degree. I, I do have some uh, scientific acumen, which certainly helps uh, in understanding the technologies. And those would be the two largest things. I, you know, I, I, I learned a lot on the job as well. It's not as though, at least when I was learning this industry, there were not a lot of courses in the kinds of things I'm doing now. That has changed. Uh, if you go to the local university here, they have a whole curriculum uh, around energy issues. Who are some of your mentors and how have they helped you in your advancement? You know, it's interesting because, again, when I was coming up in the ranks, uh, mentors were not all that common. So... I, I, there were certainly a lot of people that helped me, um, you know, succeed and go forward, but there was not a specific mentor. And I, I, I've been thinking about this question because in once I started to advance in, in my career, I actually had young men come up to me and explicitly ask me to be their mentors, but no young women have ever done that. 
which I found curious. And I, I know for myself, I did not feel like I should reach out and ask for a mentor because I was worried that was going to indicate some sort of weakness uh, or insufficiency on my part. You mentioned that young women weren't asking. What, what advice do you have for a young woman who needs a mentor? Absolutely get a mentor. It does not mean it does not indicate any weakness. Uh, in fact, it indicates a maturity and strength uh, if you go and ask somebody to be their mentor. Uh, I'd also recommend that you find a mentor that uh, ultimately, to the extent you work well together, that he or she could help you in your future to move up. And also, I'd recommend meeting regularly, even though you may not talk about anything specific. It just helps to have those regular meetings with a mentor. One of the things I find interesting about mentorship is typically the mentee feels that they're just taking from the mentor, but oftentimes they don't realize what they're contributing to the mentor. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, because they're asking more basic questions than you normally do in your everyday lives. And sometimes it's really good to go back to basics because it helps you see further into the future. So your first job in the energy field, was it as an attorney? Yes. Okay. What were you doing? We were representing public utilities in getting permits, getting their rates approved, uh, things along those lines. And then where did it go from there? Governor Doyle actually appointed me to become a public, public service commissioner in Wisconsin, uh, which means I, along with two other people, regulated the public utilities in Wisconsin. And then after that, I became the senior advisor to the secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. And I am now back in private practice helping clients both in the private and public sector in the electricity industry. What was the biggest surprise about working for the federal government? There are um, in, in the federal government, there are two sort of sets of employees. One are career staff, and they are there no matter who, what political party is in charge. And then there are political appointees, and they come and go with whomever is in charge. With regards to the political uh, appointees, I was told that there are really two types. There's one type that is there because they really believe in the cause and they want to do good. And there's the other type that they're there to get their next position. The motivations of the political appointees actually uh, was it was quite stark as to the kind of activities they would do, uh, depending on which class they were in. And you could see this almost immediately. I'm sure a smarter person could. It took me a little (laughs) while to figure out which which buckets people were in. And you had an opportunity to work with Secretary Chu? Absolutely. So Secretary Stephen Chu uh, is a Nobel laureate uh, and uh, did not come from the energy field. And so he was uh, the secretary of the Department of Energy. He certainly had a vision that obviously President Obama believed in as to energy in, in our nation. Delightful and curious man. So even though he was not uh, necessarily... Uh, you know, had a hefty background in a lot of these areas. He was very curious. He would take in information. He'd be able to analyze it very quickly and come up with decisions. It sounds like at that level, you'd have to be very collaborative if you don't have that background. How did he facilitate collaboration among the people who are working with him? One of the things that shocked me is I found the further up you get uh, in the decision-making hierarchy at the federal government, Um, the more assimilated the information uh, becomes. And so at each level, you have to condense the information so that somebody above you can make a decision. 
And when you get to the secretarial level, the amount of, you know, essentially huge amounts of information need to be pulled together and put in nice little packets so that uh, somebody like Secretary Chu can read the materials, come up to speed very quickly, understand what the critical points are, and make an informed decision. And so the collaboration actually happened in the collection of all of that information into whatever, whatever briefing materials were going to be presented. What lessons did you learn in Washington that you're applying today in your practice? It's very important to know who the decision maker is in whatever um, problem or uh, you know, endeavor you're trying to uh, accomplish in front of you. There, and as a lawyer, I often look to the law, right, to see who, the, who, who has the authority to make that decision. But there is hard power, which is what I just described, but there's also soft power. And sometimes soft power actually uh, is the driving force behind what happens. When you talk about soft power and hard power, can you give examples of what is, what's the distinction between the two? Sure. Uh, with regards to hard power, it is uh, the person who legally is responsible for making a decision. They have the legal authority or they have, you know, if you're in an organization that they are designated the person who has the authority to make that decision. For soft power, there may be a lot of people behind the scenes that are actually making the decisions and they may not be in the chain of command. And knowing actually who's making the decision is critical. There are lots of stories in the news about the desire or need to have more people go into STEM uh, fields, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and lots of stories that we need more young girls, more women to be in these STEM uh, studies. The energy sector has fewer women than even in tech, and you hear stories about uh, technology and how they're underrepresented by women. What advice do you have to girls or young women who are considering a career in the STEM field? Go for it. Number one, go for it. You know, when I started off uh, in my career in working in, in utilities, I was usually the only woman in the room, but that has already changed. So there are more and more women going into the fields. There, for instance, are a lot more uh, women CEOs of very large public utilities in the United States. So women are becoming more common in the field. But by the same token, we still are by far a minority in the field. You know, some of my advice would be be the absolute best you can be because, you know, technical competence is, uh, is fundamental to being able to move forward and have people listen to you. But also emotional intelligence is very important. And, and I say that out of experience because I was taught to be very technically competent, which I, I became. Uh, and I undervalued the relationships as I was moving up. So building relationships and understanding, you know, how, uh, how people work together is, is critical in your career in addition to the numbers and the formulas. You shared an interesting story about a boardroom and 30 people from Wall Street coming in. Would you recount that uh, for our audience? Because I think it's really central to this idea of encouraging young girls and women to, to be a part of the energy industry. Sure. 
when uh, many utilities are publicly traded, so Wall Street is very interested in how those utilities are going to be regulated and they want to come in and talk to commissioners. So I was having my Wall Street meeting. I walked into a room where a number of representatives were from Wall Street, probably about 30 people all around a big room, uh, a big table, and they were all men. And I walked up to the head of the table and before even sitting down, I said, where are the women? And there was some stuttering. Uh, and uh, they did acknowledge that they would try to do better the next time. Um, I just would hope that whether you're a man or a woman and you walk into a room and everybody at the table looks the same, you call it out. I would also note that uh, if you're going into a highly technical field, don't forget the importance of communication skills. Uh, because time and time again, I've run into folks that are fantastic on the technical side, but are incapable of actually communicating uh, their conclusions or their thoughts to people that don't have the same level of technical expertise. Our guest today is energy expert Lauren Azar. We just heard about her career journey and advice she has for people interested in a career in the energy sector. When we come back from this short break, we will discuss energy in the United States, including the future of coal, new and disruptive technologies, energy grid security, and the ways in which energy will change the way we live and work. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We are back with energy expert Lauren Azar. We just heard about how she became one of the most powerful women in the energy field. Now we're going to turn our attention to the future of energy here in the United States. Lauren, we've got a, a very diverse audience here, and we're going to talk about some very technical things. In part two here, we're going to talk about the future of energy, the future of the electricity grid in the United States. So just keep in mind that... Uh, you're going to keep things simple for us, right? I will absolutely keep things simple. And as a result of simplifying things, they may not be precisely accurate in all situations. Okay. When we met this summer, you were describing how energy policy is planned in the United States. Can you walk us through what it looks like and how far into the distance uh, this energy policy planning takes place? When you're... Uh, planning for how much generation to build, a utility will look at and determine how much electricity their customers are going to need five or 10 years out. And then they add a little extra because you never know if it's going to become super hot on those days, uh, you know, in that year and um, more electricity will be needed. And uh, then you determine if you actually can 
essentially produce that amount of electricity with your existing generators. And if you can't, then you've got to buy it somewhere else. And that's either by building your own new generator or purchasing it from somebody else. When you, when you talk about adding a little bit on top to, you know, to, to hit peak levels, what percentage are you talking about? Well, that's a art in and of itself. Uh, it's called the reserve margin. And for instance, in Wisconsin, we were looking at, I believe, a 12% reserve margin. Uh, in other areas, I know it's 7%. Uh, part of uh, the answer to that question depends on how um, strong your transmission grid is. Because if you have a really strong transmission grid uh, in your state, you would be able to purchase electricity outside of your state. So in other words, you then wouldn't need as much generation within your state. We know whatever we come up with is going to be wrong. What we want to do is develop a plan and develop the infrastructure that would allow for a variety of outcomes. So it's almost like building the number of lanes on a highway. Right. Yes. And, you know, when you're uh, looking at electricity, you're looking at weather as a huge component. Uh, populations are a huge component. Uh, the technologies, as you pointed out, are also um, very important. Uh, for instance, as electric vehicles grow, that the amount of electricity that's going to be needed for electric vehicles is going to increase the need for uh, generation. What kind of security vulnerabilities do we have with our current electrical grid system and what's being done to reduce those risks? So there are challenges with regards to the security of the grid, and they come both from natural sources as well as human sources. Um, from natural sources, uh, it's primarily extreme weather. Uh, when uh, you know we see blackouts now in the United States, they are mostly related to extreme weather, and that would also include flooding. Solar flares are also uh, a problem with regards to a threat to the grid, that if there are pretty significant geomagnetic disturbances, it essentially fries components of the grid, which is not what you want as a fried grid. As far as humans, there are a number of things. Uh, cybersecurity is probably top on everybody's list. Uh, a number of countries have already been hit with cyber attacks. Uh, and they have successfully brought down the grid. So we are constantly in the United States looking at cybersecurity. Physical threats are also on the rise, unfortunately. And, you know, there's a primary example of a, a substation in California that was uh, 17 different transformers were shot out by uh, we don't know how many people. But it was a very sophisticated attack. They, they cut the fiber optic cables first uh, so that nobody could see them. And then they shot out these 17 transformers. There's also, which is really dramatic, and we hope it will never happen. It's called uh, a, an electromagnetic pulse, which is the explosion of a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, we're continuing to study exactly how, what impact that will have on the grid. But the expectations are it could be catastrophic. Coal was a big topic of discussion during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Candidate Trump and now President Trump talked about restoring the coal industry. What's the future of coal as an energy source in the U.S.? So just based solely on economics, uh, it is going to continue to decline. Um, as a general rule, and again, this is very simplified, uh, the most um, efficient 
and cheapest generators are the ones that run. And so if you have a really expensive generator, it doesn't run. And if it doesn't run, it doesn't produce revenue, which means you're going to want to retire it. And coal right now is not the cheapest source of fuel. So uh, natural gas is the winner right now in some areas of the United States. In other areas, wind is the wind is the winner. And in other areas, solar is the winner. Bottom line is coal is rarely the winner with regards to the cost effectiveness um, of the generator. Consequently, unless coal is subsidized, which President Trump has been trying to do, or unless the technologies of coal generation improve, which also President Trump is trying to do, uh, coal will continue to be retired. What time frame would coal be completely phased out? I don't think coal is going to be gone by 2050, but I think it will be significantly diminished. Uh, in fact, just last week, uh, XL Energy, which is a very large utility, uh, announced that it was going to uh, be 100% carbon-free by 2050. Wind and solar are becoming bigger contributors to overall U.S. energy. How do you see these trending over the next 20 to 30 years? Maybe, maybe we could start with what percentage of the energy does it contribute right now and how is it going to grow? So right at, in 2017, solar was about 1% of the generation in the United States and uh, wind was about 6%. Hydroelectric was 7%. Now, uh, hydroelectric, we have a lot of dams already built. Um, there are expectations that maybe a, a few more are gonna be built, but because of environmental regulations, there's not, we're not anticipating expanding that um, too much. Wind is by far, um, it, it is cost comparable with natural gas in many parts of the United States right now. And as a consequence, a lot of it's being built. Um, I think wind is going to be continued to be built. And, and, and let me just emphasize that this is geographically specific. So for instance, in the Midwest, wind is the most cost-effective uh, renewable source. In Hawaii, in California, in Arizona, it's solar. And so you want to look at uh, what the uh, essentially the quality of the, f the renewable fuel is to determine what's going to be built there. So wind is going to be huge. Solar is going to be huge. The, uh, th those technologies are becoming more and more efficient because there's lots of R&D going into it. Um, and I suspect there may be other renewables like biomass or geothermal that may become uh, even more uh, prominent as well. Battery storage is predicted to continue to drop in cost. How will cheap batteries impact the way energy is provided to our homes? We have built an infrastructure to deliver electricity just in time within seconds. The amount of steel on the ground to accomplish that is mind-blowing. Uh, if you, you know, see the transmission grid, if you see generating stations, they are huge. If you see the trains that are, or the, the pipelines that are um, transporting the fuel, it's an a, a immense amount of infrastructure. Once energy storage becomes cost comparable or cost effective, we no longer need to have that just-in-time infrastructure. That is going to fundamentally change this industry. It's going to fundamentally change our nation. That's going to take a long time, mind you, but it will be quite dramatic. What do you think that time frame is? I would say 40 years, 50 years. Oh. 
Uh, but as far as installing storage now, that's happening. California requires the installation of storage. Many people, in fact, many solar photovoltaic installers are now installing um, solar panels on people's roofs with storage in their basement. Um, so storage is already here, but it's expensive. And it's going to continually drop, though. Are there other methods of storage? There are. Uh, there's uh, compressed air uh, where literally uh, you take electricity, you uh, push air into old salt caverns in the ground, and then you slowly uh, allow that air to come up and it generates electricity. Of course, pumped hydroelectric is another kind of uh, storage where you pump water up a hill and then you let it come down through the hydroelectric dam. So there's lots of different kinds of storage. When we were talking offline, one of the interesting things that you said is just because you have battery storage and you might have solar panels doesn't necessarily mean that you're off the grid. Is that true? The folks that were hit by Hurricane Sandy were a little surprised whenever uh, they had solar panels and thought they were going to be okay, and it turns out their solar panels did not deliver electricity. Uh, the way uh, panels are currently connected to the grid uh, has them automatically shut off when the grid goes down. Um, and so you very specifically, if you have storage and PV, you can ask your utility uh, to allow you to what's called island from the grid, uh, but very few utilities do that. What other new technologies will disrupt the industry and change the way we live and work? So uh, storage by far is number one. I would uh, also talk about microgrids. Uh, again, this comes back to uh, energy security. A microgrid is an, a geographic area where you've got uh, generation and you also have storage. So it can island from the grid uh, for hopefully long periods of time. Um, we're seeing uh, some of the states in the Northeast, for instance, install microgrids uh, if, in their communities just so when the uh, lights go out that their citizens do have uh, a place to go. So the cost of renewables is going to continue to decline because the technologies are going to continue to improve. Just as an example, in Wisconsin, uh, we have uh, good resources in a very small number of areas, which are, have already been developed uh, for, for wind generation. But as the technology of wind has improved, we are now able to install wind generators in areas that they would never install them before because it is now cost-effective to install them in these areas with more marginal winds. Uh, and I think that's going to happen in more places in the United States, not just with wind, but also with solar. Big data is another area. Uh, where I do think uh, we've already seen a, a lot of implications of big data and the Nest thermostats are a perfect example uh, where they are collecting a lot of information from a lot of different customers and they are either feeding that to the utility to allow the utility to do some predictions or they actually uh, can control what is going on in your house with regards to your electricity consumption. So if, the, if, if a big data aggregator is seeing a lot of uh, increase in electricity usage, uh, if they have the direct controls, they are able to, for instance, turn your air conditioner, you know, make, make it a little warmer, two degrees warmer or something, to reduce that electricity load. How will artificial intelligence play a disruptive role in the energy sector? I think it's going to be coupled with the big data. Uh, because ultimately, 
the more information we can get from the larger number of customers, the more we're going to be able to uh, control peak loads. And the reason that's important is because, as we talked about earlier, when you're building generation, you always have to build for the highest electricity use, and then you build for even more. But when you're building generators uh, for the, the, the peaks, that's hardly ever used. Those generators are hardly ever used, so they're very, very expensive. To the extent you can reduce that peak, you are saving a lot of money uh, for the customers. So big data is able to essentially come up with changes in customer behavior over a very, very large group. And so everybody just has to change their behavior just a little bit in order to accomplish the peak shaving that I was just talking about. When you think about the Internet of Things and how it applies in the energy industry and among the electricity grid or electric grid, you know, how do you see that being disruptive or transformative? It's, a, it's a exhilarating. Um, at, there are a number of appliances in your home right now uh, that if an aggregator or you your utility could control them, we would be able to reduce the peak loads. We'd be able to reduce electricity uh, costs pretty dramatically. And as an example, most appliances right now have a place where a computer chip could go that would allow interactive communication between either an aggregator or a utility um, to say, once again, with regards to your refrigerator, if, if it was going to be cost effective, everybody's refrigerator would become just a little bit warmer uh, for 10 minutes out of the hour. That could have a huge impact if there were 50,000 50, refrigerators that that happened with. Uh, so the Internet of Things, to the extent there's going to be interactive communication and interactive controls um, with uh, those appliances that use a lot of electricity, it, it, it's going to help us quite a lot. It's, it's very exciting. When you think about renewables and, you know, obviously it's offsetting some other energy source, but the economic impact of renewables, is that a net positive for the United States or a net negative? Meaning, are we going to lose jobs because of renewables or is this uh, advancing our economy? I think it's advancing our economy. And if you think about this, I, I sort of want to go back to a streetcar example. Um, you know, when streetcars were really popular, um, there were a lot of jobs around streetcars. And then cars came around and buses came around. And uh, did the streetcar jobs go away? Yes. Did the automobile uh, jobs increase and bus uh, jobs increase? Absolutely. That's the kind of transformation we're going to see in the electric industry with regards to generation. It seems to me that these jobs are typically really good jobs, really um, high paying jobs, more, more engineering type jobs. Is that uh, There's a variety of jobs. In fact, uh, we're hoping a lot of technical colleges, for instance, are going to be teaching people how to install solar uh, on folks' roofs, rooftops. Um, so there's going to be a variety of uh, levels of skill that are going to be required in the, in, uh, to implement a renewable energy future. I've had a blast researching this conversation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned Good. a lot and realized that there's a lot more to learn. What is a solar road? 
Solar actually can be installed in a lot of things, including on roadways. Uh, I believe France was the first to install a solar road back in 2016. And it's uh, that the, the solar crystals are in, essentially embedded in the road. Uh, and so the road is producing electricity um, while it's just sitting there. Uh, the, you know, the latest analysis of solar roads are that it may not be cost effective to install, you know, the, these solar in all of our roads. Um, there are, there are solar roof tiles right now, which, uh, is another area where I personally hope it does take off, right? Rather than install roof tiles on top of vehicles. No, or, roof tiles on top of your house. Oh, so replacing every, like shingles. Oh, every single sing, shingle on your house is actually a, a mini solar panel. Well, that's um, very attractive. It is very attractive. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the, it, the, they're not cost effective yet, but that's another area where I hope that uh, R&D is going to help uh, bring the cost down. This idea of just-in-time delivery is fascinating. And, and so maybe you could explain that a little bit more because you can't always predict when there's going to be a massive draw on the, the grid, right? Correct. And let me just give you a, a, an analogy with regards to the just-in-time. The high-level grid has to keep a frequency at a certain amount. The frequency can't get too much, i.e. there can't be too much generation put on it, or the frequency can't drop. In other words, too many toasters come on. Um, and it's like a swimming pool where um, there are hoses going into the swimming pool and there are drains coming out of the swimming pool. Uh, and you need to keep the swimming pool within, you know, about an inch. So as a whole mess of drains open up, a whole mess of uh, hoses that are filling up the swimming pool have to turn on. And there are a variety of different ways uh, we do do that, uh, including generators that sort of are spinning but not putting electricity on the grid. And so when a lot of toasters come on, they're able to very quickly put more generation on the grid. You know, another example that uh, we talked about is that if you're aggregating electricity over a number of customers and you're able to control their electricity use, you would then be able to respond pretty quickly uh, to uh, changes in electrical use um, over, uh, you know, a, a confined geographic area. This has been fascinating. Lauren, thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.